Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm talking to Len Rubenstein, who's a core faculty member of the Center for Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. A lawyer by training, he previously served as the executive director and then president of Physicians for Human Rights. In our discussion, we speak about the human rights issues involved in the response to the novel coronavirus epidemic. Let's listen. Professor Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining me. This is a moment with the coronavirus outbreak where people are worried that thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people in the United States may get very seriously ill. Um, And at this difficult moment, people are thinking about all kinds of restrictions um, to contain the virus. And it seems like almost every day people are proposing and enacting even more Um, stringent restrictions in different places around the world saying, look, we do not want to be in a position like Italy where people who need medical treatment can't get it. Um, At this difficult moment, um, what is an important human rights consideration that is on your mind? It is, of course, really important to get this outbreak under control. Uh, We do have a public health threat to the country that could affect many, many people and cause thousands of deaths. So we do have to get this under control. The question is whether and how we do it. And there has been a history of, of public health responses to epidemics, which is coercion based. There's kind of an impulse to stop people from moving, to lock people up, to uh, deprive people of the ability to live lives uh, in a way that they need to. And these restrictions can have terrible effects. Uh, In the Liberia Ebola outbreak in uh, 2014, one response was to uh, basically put a fence at, around a community of a million people uh, as a way of restricting their movement. But all it did was create panic, uh, increase the spread of disease within that community, and ended up leading to violence. As a result, uh, the use of coercion against individuals from a quarantine standpoint which is a little different than uh, isolation of people with the disease. Yeah, let's pause right there. Let, let's just pause right there just to make that case. So um, isolation is for people who are sick. And there is yes. a history um, of using coercion if necessary, if somebody who's sick and a threat to the community um, doesn't accept treatment or the ability to um, stay away from others. Is, is that true? Yes, and I would I would differentiate differentiate it. I, what we have to do is look at the standards to how to judge interventions, okay. and those standards may result in different results depending on what the intervention is. 
for example, quarantine versus isolation of someone who's already sick. So for isolation, when somebody's sick, say with a, a very infectious disease, um, would you say there it is might be more acceptable for the state to use coercion if they're not able or willing to accept isolation? Uh, the first thing we have to do is look at the standards. The standards which were adopted about 35 years ago to uh, at the human rights analysis of uh, public health intervention in response to an outbreak uh, have to do with criteria like, is it effective? Is the intervention evidence-based? Is it likely to work? And is it the least restrictive way of going about addressing the problem? Uh, there's also has to be transparency. And when you apply those very good standards in their public health as well as common sense standards and human rights standards, you know, it might come out with different outcomes depending on what, uh, what the intervention is. So in the case of a quarantine, you have to be very careful uh, that the um, intervention meets those criteria. And many times it doesn't because all it does is increase uh, the spread within the community and it has tremendous harms without any evidence of effectiveness. Got it. Isolating a sick person is different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that when I was a health commissioner in Baltimore, I signed some isolation orders for people with multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, for example, who um, otherwise were not accepting of treatment. That was a tough thing to do. And we had to constantly check in to make sure that those orders were still needed. But what you're saying is when someone's sick and immediately posing a threat, those criteria for restriction on their movement um, may be more likely to be met. With quarantine, it's just someone who's been exposed. They're not necessarily feeling any symptoms at the moment. And with quarantine, people think sometimes that they can apply it to a huge population, not just a request to individuals. Is that uh, a big difference? It's a, it's a big difference. And I would say that's exactly what happened in China where they quarantined 50 million people and we still don't know the consequences to people's health and well-being uh, of that um, quarantine. And we don't know, despite a lot of discussion about this, whether that quarantine is what helped stop the transmission or was what the other interventions. Uh, and the general answer is yes, you apply the criteria. And with respect to the um, tuberculosis example that you mentioned, uh, it may well be that the, out, the decision is different, but you do want to apply the criteria in every case. So when you look around now and you see... Um closing of events and sort of a loose circle being drawn around New Rochelle, New York. Um, uh, how concerned are you that the quarantine question may become um, uh, a problematic for human rights in the United States? Because we certainly have not seen, you know, the, what you described uh, happening for Ebola or even happened for coronavirus in China yet in the United States. I think the social distancing approach actually reflects application of human rights standards where these are not coercive measures. You can cancel events. 
uh, and you can ask people to be careful about not shaking hands. Uh, but that's a whole lot different than locking people up into their homes. So I think uh, our public health leaders are very cognizant of the problem of willy-nilly application of highly coercive measures. So I think uh, application of these standards uh, it can and uh, and is likely to to continue, especially among our public health officials. And uh, if problem gets a lot worse. Do you, are you worried that people may overreact? Yes, that's a very ma- major concern because um, as diseases spread, the, the impulse gets stronger to take draconian measures, and uh, you do have to be concerned about that. And so that's where leadership comes in as well, to be willing to say, we're going to take it close look at the evidence and a close look at the consequences to people's ability to move. Got it. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, one of the uh, stories out of Italy is um, riots in the jails and prisons. And um, obviously any place where a lot of people are close together um, can uh, spread coronavirus. And you, you've written um, and worked a lot in correctional health. And I would just wonder whether you think that there are some human rights issues at play with the criminal justice system right now in the United States. There are tremendous concerns. Uh, prisoners, as we know, are often abused and subjected to arbitrary treatment in all kinds of ways. And of course, with an outbreak, they are in close quarters, so social distancing and other Uh, mechanisms that we use are not as easily (laughs) available. Not only that, many uh, prisons and jails don't have soap or enough soap. Uh, Hand sanitizer is prohibited because it has alcohol. And the impulse there might be to have a total lockdown. And that means putting everybody in solitary confinement for an indefinite period. So the consequences in prisons and jails are extraordinary uh, to further abuse the human rights of prisoners. So you have to look for other solutions. What, what are other solutions? Because you, you, know, you can't just say, well, let people mingle because then you, know, you could get a huge outbreak. The, the most sensible approach is likely to be to reduce the prison population. So the contact among prisoners decreases. <laughs> there are many, many people in jails and prisons who are in the high, highly vulnerable group, um, people of advanced age. Many of them have already served very long sentences because uh, they were sentenced when they were young and they pose no threat to the community. So those people should be released. They can be released under supervision. There can be some kind of individualized determination. But unless the population goes down, the only option is to use uh, measures that are going to really hurt people, uh, like solitary confinement and lockdown. So, and those so might not even work, kind of right? I mean, those measures might not even work. So actually letting people out who could be let out would reduce the risk of a potential outbreak almost regardless of what's done in the prison and jail. 
That's that's right. It would reduce the risk to the individuals, and it would reduce the risk within the prison because there are fewer people and more space. I think in Italy, they they wound up doing something like that in part because of the challenges um, with the prison system at this incredibly difficult moment in time. So that is definitely something to um, to think about uh, here. Let me. Yes, but you shouldn't have to. <laughs> you shouldn't have to wait for riots to do that. Right. Um, Another another group, the 50,000 people in immigration detention, we already know, uh, and the record is very extensive, how poor health care is in detention facilities. They haven't even been given people flu shots, and we can't depend on that system to uh, provide the kind of care that is needed. Uh, and... Remember, these people have not committed any crime. So so there should be release of people in or many thousands of people who are in immigration detention under other kinds of conditions and release that have been commonly used in the past. Got it, because that's a group that could actually um, be contracting the disease when they get here and then passing it on because of the close quarters in a detention center. That's, that's exactly right. And at close quarters plus no treatment. <clears throat> uh, we don't know what whether there is any plan to have testing <clears throat> of people in these facilities. Uh, obviously, we're short of testing kits at the moment, but this has to do with the human rights issues where the marginalized are always the ones who who are last on the list. So we can't expect that with testing kits short, uh, these kinds of interventions will be used in these facilities. Well, certainly their track record on influenza doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, although um, there has been more pressure on immigration authorities to do better with respect to health. And there's some outstanding litigation in that area. That's another thing to keep a close eye on. I just want to ask you one other question while I have you, if that's okay, which is um, all these disruptions to life um, affect people uh, differently. We just saw in Maryland schools closed for two weeks. Um, and, you know, that's a different experience for people who um, uh, are able to take time off of work for people who can't take time off of work. Um, is that a, a practical issue only? Is that also a human rights issue? And how do you um, see that uh, that playing out? There are profound human rights issues in the, in the consequences of, of the outbreak and the response. Uh, it's not that the response is wrong. For example, closing schools that may be legitimate, but we have to think about the consequences for poor children who are losing their meals. And and all of a sudden, their basic right to nutrition is compromised. So we need to take those consequences into account to make sure that a rational public health response doesn't have these kinds of unintended consequences of breaching the human rights of people who are very vulnerable. Well, that is um, 
got to be on people's minds right now in cities like Baltimore and in places across the country as they're contemplating these different actions to be able to address the consequences of those actions in the, in the same way. Um, I, I really uh, appreciate your time. Any, any concluding uh, thoughts right now about how to balance? Um, I, th- I think one of your messages has been that it's not human rights or disease control, it's human rights and disease control. Um, I wonder uh, if you have any final thoughts in that regard. Yes, I think the point you made just now is so important. It's not a matter of choosing human rights or, and higher risk or reducing the risk at the expense of human rights. The two can not only be reconciled, but they can reinforce each other. And we have to get out of the mindset that we're making trade-offs, that we can address the human rights issues in a sensible way while at the same time uh, stopping the spread of the disease and treating people who are affected by it. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.